they basically were gambling with houses, right? Like they're betting on this appreciation and there's so many things that can happen to halt that. So the question is this, how do most agents find the secrets to succeed in today's competitive real estate market, especially when the top agents are keeping those secrets to themselves? That's the question, and this podcast will give you the answer. Hi, I'm Aaron Amuchastegui, and welcome to Real Estate Rockstars. Real Estate Rockstars, this is Aaron Amuchastegui on with Kimberly Meserve again today. This is her at least her fourth time on the podcast. The first time I got to interview her was when she was one of the 30 under 30 uh, realtor uh, kind of breakout agents. And since then, we've done a lot of state of the market reviews and happy to have her back on today. Kimberly, how's it going? It's going well. I'm so excited to be here today. Thank you for having me again. I'm glad you guys aren't sick of me yet. (laughs) No, we are not. It's fun to get to chat and you're you're like an expert in a market that I'm still, it's a really unique market, right? So you're out in Boston. And before we hit record, we even talked about the idea that, you know, I buyers have been all over the news at different times, people trying to make real estate automated or replace with software and things like that. And you talked about Boston being one of those places that's just so unique. Like there could be a, a house next to another one and the values are totally different. There's so many different things that because of the uniqueness where, iBuyers never really went there, right? No. So we're just fine. I don't remember which company it is, but we're like just finally getting one of the big ones that announced that they're coming into this market like sometime soon. But gosh, like iBuyers have been around, I don't know how how long have they been popular for? Five, seven years. And I've been like hearing about agents I know in other markets. How do you deal with this? And it's never been something that we've had to deal with. Um, and it's funny, I actually, we were just chatting about travel before we hit record. And I went to Houston for the first time a few weeks ago and I had never been to Houston and it was, it's just like night and day, how you look at those suburbs, like every house is the same. You've got these like subdivisions and there's just so much similarities. And then Boston, because it's such an old city and like zoning has changed and all those different things. It's a lot different. You don't just have these subdivisions of all these similar houses. You have so many variables. And then even like in the city, you have different neighborhoods that like you could go a few streets over and properties are way more valuable there. So I think it's, it's an interesting experiment on how those AI algorithms are actually effective in different markets. Yeah, the and you're it, there's almost like a a niche that agents can fall into because there's different neighborhoods or different cities where people could specialize in that are kind of protected from the algorithm i buyer because what the i buyer wants to do is they want to be able to see something and within a minute make an offer on it, right? Mm-hmm. And there are some neighborhoods where we can do that when we're pre- when we're prepping for auction, we can do it and there's others where you're like no, this is custom, we can't. And so the you know, some subdivisions are so big out, out in Texas when they're building them out, like a subdivision could have 300 houses getting built, new construction. Well, that becomes someone's niche, like being, becoming a master of just those 300 houses because they'll know the six different floor plans. They'll know which ones are coming up, the difference between this builder quality or that builder quality to try to find it. But yeah, if you're trying to comp a house in Houston, you know, in the suburbs where you are, and as you're flying in, you're like, okay, each subdivision has 35 of the same exact floor plan. 
That's yeah. super easy to comp if you're like, okay, in May it sold for 280,000 and in July it sold for 282,000. You're like, you're, you get to see your trend based on square footages and floor plans and then much different in an area like Boston. One of the first articles that I, I brought up and you kind of laughed about was this like tiny house in Boston that was listed for like $400,000. I'm going to try to pull it up on my screen really quick. And maybe, you know, more about this thing. It says tiny, this was uh, from a month ago. And so now it, there, I think the news has changed with it, but a month ago it got posted tiny house outside Boston for $449,000 spotlights, the market frenzy. It says in the ritzy Boston suburb of Newton, where the median home price north of a million new hot property listed for 449. It's 251 square feet, 23 square meters i'm not seeing the picture on here as i pull it maybe i can it's, i mean there's not much to show yeah. <laughs> it's 251 square feet there it is yeah they have 37 oh my gosh that's like uh that's like a, a shed you get from home depot yeah so one of my favorite things to do is sometimes like read facebook comments when articles yeah. are posted and i i think there was an article in like the boston globe or something and then i'm seeing all these comments from strangers that are just like irate about the prices and like obviously the appreciation we we know there's problems right now right with the market and what it's going in but it's it's just sometimes so funny to read those things but the crazy thing is that house is on like so it's on route nine which is it's like two lanes each direction with like a guardrail in the middle. It's a busy like commercial road. It's not a desirable location. Um, and then if you look, they actually got multiple offers. So it ended up only selling for three fifteen, but they originally got multiple offers and then they were having a really hard time with financing. Like no one would lend on it because it was too small. So they ended up just taking a massive haircut and accepting a cash offer and selling it for three fifteen. But yeah, it's, it's crazy. I could imagine huge insurance issues with that too, because when I look at, uh, when I look at that, that house, right. The 251 square foot house, like if you burned it down, you could rebuild it for 40,000 or $50,000, but lenders, they don't want to be lenders like it if the land is worth like 20% of the deal. Right. So they're like, okay, if you're buying it for 400,000, you can get it insured for 320, which is the lender coverage because the insurance companies uh, don't mind that. But yeah, you're, that is funny. So it was listed. So it was news that it was listed really high, but people were willing to pay it. But the people with cash that actually had the ability to pay it were the ones that got it. It said it sold for 315 instead. Yeah little tiny home. What a crazy, like literally like one room. <laughs> yeah. One, one room out there in Boston. And that is so, and I guess in downtown Austin. So we talk about like the markets too. I get to live in two different markets here. Cause as soon as you get like 30 minutes outside Austin, it is home building galore and neighborhoods wow. where there's 20 of the same floor plan. And then in downtown Austin, you see stuff like this, or you see backyard shared or people where they built a granny unit in the back and then they subdivided the lot. And so you'll see a lot of something where like somebody owns the house in someone else's backyard and they've got a little easement to go around the corner. And I never thought until you said that, I never thought about what a challenge the lending part of that probably is because when the building, when the building itself is so small, there's nothing to insure. Well, that's fascinating. Like we I feel like we hardly have ADUs here because our zoning is just so strict, but yeah, you're right. I I've, I've looked on Zillow before just because I always like to look in other 
markets. I know I said the bad C word, but I've noticed a lot of people have like those granny, what do they call them? Like granny pods or yeah. just different backyard units, yeah. buildings. Real Estate Rockstars, this is Aaron Amuchastegui for a quick commercial break. So during 2020 and 2021, the real estate market completely changed. There's so much competition in the market, so many people trying to buy and sell houses, but there's hardly any supply, hardly any product, hardly anyone willing to list their homes. It's time for every agent out there to become a hybrid agent investor to be able to reach out directly to homeowners to try to get them to sell or list their house. We've got a new website. Go to leadpropeller.com and you can set up your own investor buyer website in just minutes. You'll set up your own URL, set up phone numbers, help go through the leads, help reach out to people that aren't listing their pro their property currently and have them fill out a form that says, hey, I wanna sell my house. And then as an agent, you can go through and make them a hybrid offer. You can tell them, hey, I think your house would sell for $220,000 on MLS, but I can either write you a $180,000 cash offer right now, or I can help you fix it up and you'll list it for 220,000 on MLS. These are buyers that are looking for quick cash offers. Tens of thousands are submitting these forms every single day and they're skipping the listing process. But so many of you guys out there are such good agents, it's a great opportunity to get that lead and help them maximize sales price for their home. So again, go to leadpropeller.com and think about signing up for your own investor site so buyers will start reaching out to you, asking you to make an offer on their home. The I don't know if you heard when we were talking about the news in California, but a few months ago, California... They're like, hey, we're having a, an affordable housing crisis. And so they're encouraging ADUs. And they decided that any kind of lot out there, as long as you could fit it in the backyard, was now allowed to have an ADU on it. So SFR neighborhood was now allowed to have an ADU in the backyard. And then even super strict places like Santa Barbara that used to be really strict. Now you can convert any garage to a two-bedroom ADU. So people are out there. There's a business out there called ITSI, ITSI that's in Santa Barbara, their whole focus is to go reach out to homeowners and say, hey, we can convert your garage into a two-bedroom apartment, and now you can rent that out for $1,500 a month. Like Parking was such a huge issue, but imagine if garages start converting over. The other kicker is that the city, the, the law in the state is something like you have to approve the permit within 30 days for it. So all these businesses are coming out. There's even a guy developing ADUs that they can like drop in on a crane. So you could say, oh, I want to an ADU in my backyard and they bring in this pre-built one and they like drop it in your backyard oh and, and permitted and people are living there. Yes. So how, I, I wonder how people feel about that as like a homeowner. Is that a good thing or is it a bad thing? If it just becomes so dense that like people are just, they're popping up everywhere. Right. Like I feel like if you're kind of, you go through the process and not a lot of people have them, but you get one approved, like that's a cool thing. It's great, right? But then if it becomes so dense and they're literally just popping up everywhere, is that a good thing or a bad thing? Yeah, I, I think, yeah, as an investor, as, a, as an investment strategy, I go, cool, I can add a granny unit and rent it out. But, the, but I think as a resident of a neighborhood, I get what they're trying to do. I think it probably does, it, it provides more housing quicker. But I, I wouldn't want to be in a neighborhood that was that was full of, of the units or that was full of garages that were converted to these second residences, even as that extra, because parking, parking is an issue. People is an issue. It's, 
Like people don't like Airbnbs next door because that's they're always too busy. They're too loud. There's people don't like living in rental neighborhoods because there's traditionally three or four cars with a rental house compared to like if a homeowner owns it, they usually only have a couple cars. Oh right? yeah, I know all about that. So I I own a two family. It this building. So I live in one unit and I rent the top floor, and then I'm going to move in a few months. But I bought it just kind of as like a house hacking strategy and. This building was vacant for 10 years before it got renovated and I bought it. And so my street is not very busy that you don't need a permit to park on it. There's plenty of spaces, but I have tenants upstairs. So they have two cars and then we have two cars. And my neighbor the other day was like, well, like you guys have a lot of cars and I just want to make sure I have a spot to park. It's like people get really upset about that kind of stuff. And there's a lot of two families on this street. So it's not like we're the only one. Yeah. So what do you think? Would you want to, do you think adding up, making, you know, ADUs or the granny units making those way more accessible? Do you think it's going to be good for home, home values or bad for home values? I, that's a good question. I, I mean, it, the home values, well, it's a toss up, right? So like it's adding more supply. I guess it depends. Do you have the ability to like, sell that part off like how much can you subdivide off your land because if you can do that then it's definitely not good for home values because it creates more supply it's a toss-up I wouldn't want to live in a neighborhood like that as a homeowner but I think it's brilliant as an investor right because like instant value add I think having a uh I think the coolest uh outcome for them is so in my house we have a we have a regular house and then my office is in a detached like little house in the backyard Right. So I think for owners being able to instantly add an extra, you know, home for like guests to stay in when they're in town or for a home office, like I like the ability to add a building in the backyard for that. And I think that could increase values because the houses in my neighborhood that have granny units end up selling for a lot more. But if it's all rent, but none of them are rentals, nobody rents out their back unit in the, in these properties. It's like, it's convenient to have, but it, it's not, it has not increased the, the tenant relationships. So yeah, I think overall, I don't think it's going to be good for home values. I think most of the people are not going to want to live in a neighborhood that has a ton of ADUs in it, but there's a big business and I could be wrong. And someone will send me an Instagram message right now telling me how, how wrong. I, I also just like, when you said there's a company that will like drop them in, I'm just like visioning in my mind. And this is obviously not reality, but like helicopters just like dropping them in left and right. Yeah, dude, I know a guy. So I, I've got a guy in my GoBundance mastermind that did it. I need to, maybe I can find a video while we're on here. The, I could, I found it. Maybe you're going to think this is so wild. It's almost like a helicopter, but check this out. That's a house getting dropped into a backyard in San Jose. I love the caption. It's a bird. It's a plane. It's an ADU. Yeah. It's a bird. It's a plane. It's an ADU. Look at it. That like, that is crazy. People are dropping the stuff in. Really smart business. If you're in the right market. Yeah. You're in the right. So Anyway, so you won't see that out there in uh, in Boston right now, but the, you'll see another. <laughs> Probably not ever. We have a lot of. I think the term is NIMBYs. <laughs> it's one of my favorite places to come visit, though. When we got to do homeschooling local in Boston, there was nothing quite like it. So much history out there. All right, here was one you sent over. Lawsuit filed on behalf of Zillow shareholder. After the flipping business folds, a lawsuit filed in federal court Tuesday alleges Zillow illegally failed to disclose shareholders that was struggling to accurately predict home prices for its flipping business, which ultimately led to the company to shutter its operation. 
Yeah, so I read a couple articles on this because it's kind of top news right now. And basically, shareholders are saying that Zillow failed to accurately disclose that they were having trouble with this. Yeah. That's not something I was thinking about when I saw the headlines. I forget about the fact that Zillow is publicly traded. It's there's been a lot of laughing, a lot of everything of people going, oh man, they missed it. Or, oh, we should have seen it. And part of how this story broke at different times, we had, we brought, we talked about it on a state of the market when they first said, Hey, we're closing down operations. Right. And they were not saying, and at that time they could have disclosed to shareholders probably. Yeah. And they still just said, we're taking a break until the end of the year because we have a lot of houses. And that's that was kind of the what was spoken out. And then Business Insider was one of the places that they decided to go do some research. And I know one of the people that wrote the articles that was one or one of the researchers on the on the article. And they went into these different places and they said some in Phoenix, they were gonna they were losing money on something like 90% of the properties they had in Phoenix or 95. So then Business Insider broke that story. And then that got big and that started getting shared all over the place. They're like, whoa, they're losing money on 90, 95%. And I think it was the next day, maybe that Zillow decided to finally say, okay, we're shutting it down. We're laying off 25% of the workforce. We reached out to Zillow after that. We're like, hey, do you want to sell us some houses? And they're like, believe me, we've had hundreds of inquiries saying the same thing. Really? Uh, I even saw a note of a guy saying, I sold my house to Zillow for 500,000. They reached out and asked me if I wanted to buy it back. And I offered them 350,000 and they said, okay. Um, yeah, I saw a couple, there was a thread on Reddit of people talking about their experiences of selling to, to Zillow. And there was a lot of stories like that of like people having the opportunity to essentially buy their house back for cheaper than they sold it for. It's crazy. I think the, the lesson of their lawsuit, again, it's, it's, I had, it's forgetting. It's easy to forget like they're publicly traded. And they're publicly traded for people that invest into something or invest into a business plan. And it really was, even though Zillow was set up to be involved in real estate and their mission was to own every part of that real estate process, getting to see that significant of a change is like, oh yeah, like when you're going to, when you're going to try new business plans, it's not just about failing. I bet, I wonder... What do you think? Do you think the lawsuit's valid? Do you think the person has a chance? Like, I know we're not legal experts at all, but if you were like judging it, do you feel like that's a fair argument? I, I think so. I, I just feel like they took something and yeah, like essentially what our real estate businesses are, are just like a method of delivery of a product, right? Like that's what all businesses are, but I feel like they over commoditized the real estate transaction mm -hmm. and they also like, I just have a hard time understanding their approach to it. Like, it's almost like they didn't start small in any way. Like they, they tried it a few times and then they're like, let's go buy every house. And there's so many things that are variables and like, have we learned nothing from 2020 with just like all the lumber supply chain issues? It's just, I, yeah, I think if I was a big investor, I could see the logic behind that and I'd be pretty upset too. Yeah. We were part of the original, like back in several years ago, we were part of the sample iBuyer Zillow thing when they were just doing it in Las Vegas. It was this new test market. And at that time it didn't work. Most of the stuff that was getting sent over to us were like, this, I, this isn't going to be able to work. We would get an escrow and then we'd do inspections and it would know, like it, it didn't work when we were actually able to go through a normal escrow process there values. Um, I mean, I don't know. This is fundamentally, so his big statement said, 
Fundamentally, we've been unable to predict future pricing of homes, the level of accuracy that makes a safe business to be in. So future pricing of homes. Now, maybe part of that statement is saying, you know, over the last year, prices went up 20%, prices went up 20% again. We were betting on that, but now we don't think it's going to go up 20% again. But I think then investors and stockholders go, oh, this estimate's not as good as it is. But it said that Zillow shares sank 23% the next day. That's such a great article you found. So like sank 23%. And part of the lawsuit says, well, in our earnings call in May and August, Zillow said in May, the iBuyer program is surpassing our internal expectations. And then in August said surpassing and continues to accelerate. So the, the last two earnings call was like, everything is awesome, better than we could have imagined. And then all of a sudden it was like, okay, we made a big mistake. We're out. So yeah. yeah. And, and that's crazy how quickly that changed. So it's like lesson learned. You shouldn't, it, they basically were gambling with houses, right? Like they're betting on this appreciation and there's so many things that can happen to halt that. Right. Like what if not that it's going to happen, but a lot of times like interest rates, those things are tied to big events. Like, like someone could have bombed the U S and started war. Like that's going to change things. And we don't often think about that stuff, but like that could change interest rates. Suddenly your buyer pool slows down. Like they, it's almost like they just failed to think about all these things. And they're like, Woo, like the real estate market's on fire. Let's take advantage of it. Right. Which is what normal people, like normal, regular people, they're doing that, right? They're like, let's buy Bitcoin. Let's buy houses. Everything's going crazy. But the, but they are, they, they're got, they're publicly traded. They're dealing with right. someone else's and money. It, like they have a fiduciary responsibility. Like, yeah. It's not Bitcoin. Like if you're like, oh shoot, like Bitcoin is tanking, sell, sell, sell. Like real estate, you don't just like sell it so quickly like that. <laughs> One thing that, that disturbs me a little bit about them fire selling it is they do have a lot of data. They know how many people are clicking on houses. So I think deep down, they know, like they probably have stats that you and I couldn't think about for how many people are still looking to buy a house in, in Texas or in right. Boston, right? Because part of me says that in most of these, in all these markets they're in, prices have gone up 17% over the past year, something like that, between 15 and 20, but it's like 17 on average. Interest rates are 5%. I'm sure they get cheap money. Even if they're down money, part of me goes, well, why don't you just hold the houses for six months? The uh, wait, if, if you believe the market's going to continue, just hold the houses for six months. The, it's going to appreciate faster than your interest rate and then sell them at that point. So you're not taking such a huge loss for investors. It's, part of me is like, it's almost irresponsible to fire sell them unless they think the market has now leveled off. Like not saying it's going to go down, but if they're saying, you know, it's not going to increase anymore. So every month when we hold it and we pay that holding cost, it's better just to get rid of it. No, I think they over, I, I don't think that's what it is. I think I, I kind of wonder that, do they actually know how to interpret the data that they have? Because if they did, like, we're talking about a company that's going in and like, I've heard tons of stories about like offer pad, offer this for my house, open door, offer this for my house. And then like Zillow just knocks them out of the park. It's like, it's almost like there was no logic behind what they were doing. They're just like, whatever, like, let's do whatever we have to, to buy all these houses with like, no, I, I just, there's a lot that I would love to know the, about what, what was going on there. Hey, real estate rock stars. This is Aaron Abuchastegui, and I'm interrupting myself to bring you this commercial break from one of our sponsors. And I know, I know you guys would much rather listen to the content and not the ads and not the sponsors. 
But this is one that I'm actually super, super excited with. You know, so many of the realtors that we interview on the show, they talk about how much systems are important and how much follow-up is important. And I'm really, really excited about our new sponsor. There's somebody I've been looking at for a long time. And when they reached out to me, I said, yes, we have to be able to do this deal. So that sponsor is Follow-Up Boss. You know, on an interview last week with Agent Mark McGuire, I asked him what his favorite software and what his favorite system was. And he said it was Follow-Up Boss. And then he went on for another three or four minutes to talk about why Follow-Up Boss was the best CRM he uses. So there's a lot of superstars out, out there that use Follow-Up Boss. Some of the stats they gave me, Robert Slack, 1.5 billion team in Florida, number one in the US. He uses Follow-Up Boss to get a 400% ROI on its massive paid lead spend. Deborah Beagle, co-owner of the Ashton Group in Nashville, uses Follow-Up Boss to guarantee the agents who join her team get two homes under contract in the first 90 days. That's a big guarantee for new agents. Barry Jenkins of the, your friends in real estate uses Follow-Up Boss to automate everything so his team can produce 200 million on 25 hour work weeks. All right, so here's an offer. You guys are gonna get this special for being Real Estate Rockstars listeners. Now, I've, I've used Follow-Up Boss. We've actually used it in our non-real estate businesses as well because it's so good at being able to set timers, set automatic texting and emailing, and what do, what do you know, best name ever, Follow-Up. So here's what we got. For Real Estate Rockstars listeners, you get a 30-day free trial. That's normally 14 days. So in order to get this, you go followupboss.com forward slash rockstars. So again, followupboss.com, just like it sounds, forward slash rockstars. Go there, get your 30-day free trial, and check it out, especially if you aren't using any systems or any CRMs yet. This will be a great one for you to start with. All right, everybody, thanks again. Now back to our show. I would love to know, too, what the incentive structure is. One of the big problems when like little funds would start buying a lot of houses in SFR is if there was a bonus at every purchase or something, if somebody was getting paid a point or two every time there was a purchase, then incentives aren't necessarily aligned. And they're like, Hey, we just want to win because Zillow is big enough. So that, that lawsuit, if it go, if it gets much legs, I'm sure it will go into compensation Were there people that got big bonuses or changed it based on hitting certain metrics that led to non-aligned incentives through that but i think yeah it's and i i mean all it really takes is like one lawsuit for people to start digging right like that i'm curious to see how this all plays out if it it could be nothing or it could end up being like a huge scandal like who knows maybe like you're saying people were incentivized to hit certain metrics or buy a certain amount of properties or whatever like it's going to be interesting to watch See, see, follow the money, see how it happened. So I like that. So I said, Hey, maybe it means the prices aren't going to stay up. You said, no, I think they just did a bad job. And business insider, uh, article came out 23 minutes ago. They agree with you. They said real estate investors say Zillow failed at home flipping because local knowledge trumps fancy algorithms saying they just got it wrong. They explain why individual buyers still have the advantage and the, um, you know, real estate is local. There's lots of flip and fix and flip stuff. Firms such as Open Door, Offerpad, Redfin, you know, do all the instant cash stuff. But just it does talk about you know small investors and big eye buyers face the same challenges. But the individual person, you know, with local market knowledge, can trump stuff. Well, it's true. It's like 
it's back to what we were talking about, right? Where like you could be in one zip code, but you go two streets over and things are totally different. And that's part of that just boots on the ground that it's going to be really, really hard for these AIs to replace. I've never been able to invest very well in like downtown Austin because down there you do have a million dollar house next to a $5 million house. And my, I've always been a, you know, a flipper that's like, I, I choose areas. I love these new home neighborhoods because I don't have to do any thinking. I go, yeah. yep, there's the data. Now I know exactly what my risk is, but it, uh, but yeah, the, the, the local type stuff, they tried to go into more items. Um, we should see uh, how it works. I've got another one on here. We start to run through a few more articles. Blackstone's John Grace is a global shortage of rental housing is a terrific opportunity for the investing giant. Here's a rundown of the hottest real estate plays on the radar. They've been one of the biggest, you know, rental investors in kind of the, the SFR space where they've bought, you know, tens of thousands, hundreds of thousands of houses across uh, the U.S. They stay, they say it's still going. And it said now they're working into investing in like studio space, data centers, other things that came up in the article was like self-storage and things like that as they're going into kind of other commercial. But it's still really interesting to me that 10 years ago, housing wasn't a, it was, it, it wasn't an asset. Like people didn't own more than a thousand houses. When I went to, I went to this event in 2015, it was a single family rental conference. At that time, there were 10 companies that owned more than a thousand houses. And it was so wow. new. So just six years ago, 10 companies owned a thousand or more. And now hundreds and hundreds of companies, it's turned into this giant thing like apartments did in the eighties. In the eighties, I think, you know, most apartment owners were mom and pops and then there was consolidation like this. And now there's a bunch of apartment companies that own, you know, tons of, of firms out there. Do the, is there a lot of, go ahead. I was just going to say that's interesting because that's also like real estate team. So someone was telling me a story about a big conference that they went to maybe 10 years ago or 15 years ago. And that was before I was in real estate. And the person that was on stage as the number one earner in the company had made $300,000 in gross commission income that year. And like no one like ever dreamed of these real estate teams selling thousands of houses. So it's kind of interesting to see how the investment has gone a similar trajectory of the real estate sales teams. Yeah. What's this other article you sent over? Lifting international travel ban anticipated to boost foreign real estate purchases. Did you get a chance to look at this one? I skimmed that one quickly. Yeah. yeah. It says citizens from European, Asian, African, Central, and South American countries that were previously banned from traveling to the U.S. can now enter as long as they're vaccinated. And real estate agents are anticipating a boom in housing purchases by international buyers. It said return in full force as of November 8th. This is a cool article because I hadn't thought about the fact that, you know, it's, it's been really easy to feel like, all right, so during, since March, 2020, I haven't been able to go here or go here or go here, or now it's getting tougher to come in and out, but I hadn't thought about the fact. And so like a lot of people moved from California to Florida, Mm -hmm. right. Or like New York to Florida or California to Texas, because people are moving States based on you know what? I don't like the way life is here right now. I'm going to go to a state where life is more like that. I hadn't thought about that on the level of, I wonder if we're going to have the same impact, like with different countries, right? With some people going, Hey, it's really rough right now in China. I would rather live in the United States as different investing type stuff. Do you get a lot of international buyers in Boston? We, well, it depends. So it kind of just really 
is all hinging on what's going on with the government here. So for a while, we had tons of Chinese investors. And then I can't, this was maybe four years back, there was a policy change that it maybe taxed them more. I can't remember, but that kind of dropped off a lot of like the Chinese investors. So there's some variations there. I think it will be also interesting to see how now that things have changed in the last 18 months of like where people want to live in the U S that obviously affects pricing. Right. Mm -hmm. So how will that now change where foreign buyers want to invest their money? If like you're, typically investing in like Miami, for instance, because it meets your criteria, but also pricing, right? So now Miami is way more expensive. Is that going to change where the international buyers are investing? Yeah. Hey, real estate rock stars. This is Aaron Muchastegui with a quick commercial break. Now you've been listening, you've been waiting, and now the big rent ready mystery can be revealed. Rent ready just launched rental property accounting for landlords. It's so new, I haven't even got a chance to check it out yet. Now you can easily connect your rental properties from RentReady to an accounting software created specifically for landlords with RentReady's newest partner, REI Hub. Now I've used a lot of payment processing systems in the past and it's always been a challenge even asking them to generate APIs so it can talk to our existing systems. And they're really, any software that collects payments doesn't make it very easily to do that. But now with Rent Ready, you can automatically transfer properties and charges from your Rent Ready profile. You can track your income and expenses with matching rules and payment templates to speed up your bookkeeping. View your profit and loss or cash flow by property or unit. Get your portfolios, balance sheets, schedules, and more. Guys, we're so excited about this, and here's something even more exciting. As always, with Rockstars, you get a special, special opportunity. If you're not currently using Rent Ready, you can sign up using our special code ROCKSTAR50 and get 50% off your Rent Ready subscription. Once you set up your properties, you can add rental property accounting as a premium feature. If you're currently using Rent Ready, go check out the new accounting features designed to save you time and money while you manage your business. And remember, it's Rent Ready with an I at the end. R-E-N-T-R-E-D-I dot com. Thanks for listening. Go check them out. The, it says in here, it says sales to foreign buyers declined to the lowest level in a decade between the time the pandemic began through March 2021. Foreign investment was down 31% from April 2020 to March 21st. And then the value of real estate purchased by foreign buyers from China, Canada, and Mexico, just those three countries, dropped by 50% when comparing to those same periods you know, a year prior. So so I, I agree with this article. I believe this article, if there was a trend of a certain number of foreign buyers every year, and then for the past 18 months, they have, you know, it's gone down to the lowest levels kind of ever been percentage wise. And a 50% drop in a year over year trend is huge. So yeah, we get a lot of people that buy condos for their kids when they're in college. Cause like we have such a a big university base here. So especially foreign investors, they'll buy a condo, even if like for a while with the Chinese buyers, it was like their kid was born and they would buy a condo for them before their kid like even grew up. It's like, they just decided that you're going to go to school here. But that's kind of an interesting point too, because I think it was like a couple episodes ago that I was on. It was the one that it was like the four guys and myself and we were talking, a few of us were talking about that tale of two markets. And I, yeah. I can't remember who it was, but whoever was in Austin also was experiencing a similar thing. And a lot of that is probably, it never really clicked, but 
tied to some of those foreign investors. So I, I always thought it was, oh, people want to leave the city. They don't, it's like what's going on, what was going on in New York. They didn't want to be in the city, but I'm sure a huge percentage of that too was just the people that normally would have been buying an investment property for their kid going to school. Well, now their kid's not going to school here because schools aren't open. That definitely changes the landscape a little bit. Dude, you're so spot on with that. Like the, I hadn't thought about it either. Like the tail, because downtown Austin, the condos, the million dollar condos were slowing down, but the houses were going big. But on this article, it said that he thinks foreign demand in Miami has always tended toward condos. Domestic demand has always tended toward single family houses, but like most of like when foreign investors were investing in Florida, they're mostly investing in the high end skyscraper condos, like downtown Miami, not the housing. And, and yeah, maybe that was an extra part of, it was really easy to say people are moving out of the cities, but when you've got 50%, uh, I don't know what percentage the foreign buyers are making up of the city, but when there's a big chunk of them, especially the two or $3 million condo, there's only so many people that even have that on their radar at all. And you miss two or three of those possible people in a 50 unit complex. It changes everything. Yeah. I hadn't thought about that until just now that the, that the foreign investors, so I think that that's probably going to come through. And if, and if I was investing in like downtown city areas, I'd be turning back on my marketing uh, for some of that foreign stuff and be expecting some, some pricing coming in. Cause that's only been alive for a week, right? Like nine days ago, yeah. they, they'd say that. Well, what's crazy too, is like, if we're going to talk about cities is how quickly New York has rebounded. I don't know about sales, but I've been seeing lots of things like people were getting these crazy COVID rental deals and now it's hitting renewal time and the rent is just skyrocketing. Yeah. Yeah. It was like, there was a fire sale to rent the stuff out before, but a lot of the city is active again. They've got, they have different restrictions that they're still working with, but business that New York is known for is open, you know, Broadway's open, the stuff in the downtown. I interviewed so many people over the last couple of years that lived in the downtown area and they lived there for the amenities. And when the amenities were gone, it was sure was like a depressing time for them. And now the, now as the, the amenities are coming back, those developers are gonna have to make up for lost time too, where we're, we're seeing crazy year over year rent increases uh, out in Texas, just because the, the market demand, I imagine the stuff in those cities where now they're back, it's just going to be crazy. Um, that was a great state of the market we did with the, with the four other guys. We had uh, Daniel Del Rio and Diego and, and you, and I think David Green. Um, and this, this, was Elliot on that one too? I yeah, think. and Elliot was on that one too. So we were a few months in, uh, Elliot from, from Boise, we were a few months into the pandemic and everything was changing. We're like, what's going to happen? Let's look at the stats. So the what's the Boston market like right now? Is it still high? Is it still really low months of inventory? Is it starting to slow down for the winter? We are low. We're getting more towards a healthy low instead of like weeks worth of inventory. It depends on where, but we're kind of seeing like one to two months worth of inventory for the most part. Um, it is definitely shifted since the spring. Like I am a lot more cautious about taking a listing that I think is a stretch on price because people are like, they're always, the general public is always a little bit behind like what we're actually seeing in data. And they still think just because my friend got 50,000 over last spring, that means that I can, and that's not really what's happening anymore. So we're a lot more cautious and conservative with pricing now, especially with the motivated sellers. And the, but the good thing is like the city has definitely made a big recovery areas that had like four and it's a very like outward in type of thing, but areas that had like 
four to six months of inventory are kind of back down to like the two, two and a half, which is really where we've sat since 2018, 2017. Yeah. One to two months of inventory is a great market. Right? Yeah, it, takes, it, it takes a couple months to get, you know, if it's priced really low or the really hot stuff sells within a month, it goes back to telling, I mean, and sometimes when somebody puts a house in the market, they're excited to get that offer right away because it's exciting to have the money in the bag. But then when they realize they have to move so quick, I think for a lot of people, the emotional part of selling a house, a one to two month inventory is a good, healthy process because they're going through the process and then they get an offer and then they get to like kind of mentally accept like, okay, this is what, uh, this is what we're doing next. And the, I think last winter never slowed down in some of these markets wow. usually did because it was so, because there was so much pent up demand. I remember, you know, in Baltimore and Boston places where usually there's nothing going on in December, there was stuff going on and people were doing inspections. Like the snow's on the ground. They're like, all right, we're just waving inspections because we can't see the roof and we can't see the ground. And I bet that now um, we'll see more normal winter slowdowns in places. Here was a cool Boston article that came up to Boston Hotel in 1919 Black Sox scandal bought by lab developer. Uh, this was a Bloomberg article. Did you see this one? I didn't. Yeah, you were telling me about this. Yeah, okay. hotel I, didn't, near, go ahead. I didn't realize this had to do with the World Series. Yeah, so back from way back when uh, the, the World Series came, a hotel near Fenway Park that's, that featured in the 1919 World Series fixing scandal. The Black Sox scandal where they, where they fixed the World Series has been purchased by a developer as a biotech boom drives Boston Commercial Center. So that's Hotel Buckminster. It's a pretty cool property. I bet it's a, you know, as you drive by, it's probably a, a well-recognized yeah, spot. It's interesting that they're bringing a biotech company in there. I mean, it's going to be great. There's a lot of restaurants and things that unfortunately had to close their doors in the pandemic in that area. So it's really good for the area. But it's just not a space that you see as much biotech. Like a lot of our, our biotech startups are kind of centered in one area in Cambridge. So, Yeah, it says in the Boston area, I, didn't, I had no idea that Boston and biotech was a thing. It says the vacancy rate for lab space fell below 1% in the third quarter, the lowest in data since 1995. So there's actually, there's so much biotech there, they're actually tracking lab space and vacancy rates. And it says if you have a 1% vacancy rate, you have a crisis. So that's probably why they're bringing it in there. There's like, there's, if they're saying there's no place for it. Yeah. There's a lot, a lot of, uh, biotech, like huge amount of my clients are scientists, which I like them as clients. <laughs> smart people. <laughs> you know what? There is a whole bunch of pe smart people that come out of all the, those fun schools in Boston. Last, our little last Zillow shot today, the business insider article that uh, came out. Oh, I love this title. <laughs> yeah. Read that one for the people that aren't watching it. Zillow just stopped buying up homes. Its rival Open Door went on a binge, averaging 165 houses a day last quarter. Yeah. So back to like this, the, like, that's an awesome headline. So Open Door pioneered iBuying. They did it. They did do it first. Zillow slowed down. So back to my worry of, hey, maybe Zillow's pretty smart. Maybe they think prices aren't going to keep going up. And Open Door is like, cool, get out of the way. We're good at this. 165 houses a day. So well, I wonder though, it's like, is that clickbait? Uh, we obviously didn't read the entire article, but I wonder how many of those are just deals that Open Door would have had anyways. But then with Zillow coming in, offering these just unrealistic prices, Open Door was missing out on those deals. And so is it just making up for lost time or what? what's really the story going on there? Yeah. 
yeah, it'll be an, it, that's a big part of it because they, they list the houses for sale themselves. There's like an open door sign up. I'm getting an email probably once a month saying like, Hey, go tour these open door houses before they go live on the market. So now they're trying to sell them without agents, like direct to whoever on their email list. So the company said it owns 17,000 homes. It's largest inventory worth 6.3 billion uh, is what open door has. And uh, the company lost 57 million. It said, Opendoor said its revenue nearly doubled quarter over quarter to 2.3 billion, but the company lost 57 million during the period, an improvement over a $144 million loss during the past three months. So they still haven't figured it out yet. They're buying. That's crazy. I, the, the I company, love it, but I just have to laugh. It's like, oh, but we, we're not losing as much money anymore. <laughs> during, the, during some of the biggest real estate boom. I mean, real, I've, been in, I've been in real estate for, you know, 20 years, and this is still the biggest boom increases i've seen like this is bigger than the booms that we saw in 2005 and if the housing market's going up that high and you're still losing as an i that's that's bad I, that's a funny thing that that's like the article starts with open doors still winning since it, zillow left and then the fine print is and they only lost 50 million bucks this last quarter <laughs> but don't worry like before that we lost 100 million yeah, we're doing way better we're doing way better than we were before if the market just keeps going up by next quarter we'll be at a break even somehow the uh this was a ton of fun kimberly i love getting to have you on here so we can talk about the news anything else that you want to say to anybody out there uh, as always they're going to want to reach out to you see some of the stuff we're doing kimberly when i first had her on was well known for doing first-time buyer workshops and she moved to like a new area you know i mix up some of the cities but like in boston it was a new market she wasn't in before and was able to build just a huge business from the ground up focusing on these new new home buyer things out there. So really cool podcast to go back to listen to later. But Kimberly, anything else you want to say? Ways for people to reach out to you? Yeah, if somebody wants to connect with me, the easiest way is on Instagram at Kimberly Reserve. It's Kimberly with two E's at the end instead of a Y. I'm just happy if you guys have questions and want my help, feel free to reach out. Like I always love just giving back to the real estate community because I've had others help me along the way. So I appreciate it and want to give back. And um, thank you for having me on. I always have so much fun doing this. So anytime you want to have me back, I'm always willing to chip in. Yeah, you did great. It was, it was cool that you disagreed with me on some stuff. And then on the next articles, we saw that you were the one that was right. So I need you on here more often. <laughs> It'll help keep me honest. So Kimberly, thanks for being on the show and Real Estate Rockstars. Thanks for listening. All right, Real Estate Rockstars. This is Aaron Muchastegui jumping in again to thank you for listening to the show. Hopefully you guys loved listening to that one. And I want to make sure that you know about all of the extra resources that we have. And also we need your help. They say podcasts are free. You get to listen to podcasts for free. But what is the cost of that podcast? I would say if I could beg you to pay anything for that podcast, I would say the cost of the podcast is going and giving a review. So whether you download it on Google or Apple or YouTube or anywhere else, please go give us a review. Say what you liked, what you didn't like. It helps us get better guests. The more reviews, the higher we get in the rate rankings. Right now, we are the biggest podcast out there for real estate agents. And we want to keep that spot because we know there's lots of podcasts out there. So go give us a review. Also, be sure to go to hybendigital.com. If you liked any of the resources that those real estate agents talked about, we've got a huge video vault of those resources for free. Every penny that comes on the podcast that we interview, they give us something that helps them get their deals or helps them work with their clients. And we put that in the toolbox in our vault for you. So go to hybendigital.com and you can get it. If you're looking for real estate education, go to rebusuniversity.com. 
We have all sorts of courses in there to help agents succeed in real estate. How to get the listing, how to negotiate deals, you know, how to become an investor, all sorts of different stuff, rebusuniversity.com. And if you want to chat with me, go find me on Instagram. If you come find me on Instagram, you can send me messages. Tell me what you want to hear. Tell me what you liked, what you didn't like. We try to put a bunch of content out there too. You can find me in two different places. It's at rerockstars.com for our Real Estate Rockstars page or at erinamuchastegui.com for my personal Instagram page where I can chat with you about all sorts of different things. Thanks for listening. We'll see you again soon. This podcast is a part of the C-Suite Radio Network. For more top business podcasts, visit c-suiteradio.com.